the greatest possible example of humility compels us then to humbly serve and care for one another. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. You know, this uh, time of year, many of us like to watch Christmas movies, don't we? We've got our stable of Christmas favorites. uh, And one of my favorite Christmas movies is Scrooge. You know, the 1951 version with Alistair Sim as Scrooge. I really love that one. A little spoiler alert, though, folks. Critical plot elements are about to be revealed here. Uh, I always enjoy watching Scrooge's transformation at the end of the story when he goes from that miserable, old, cynical, and selfish Scrooge to the kind-hearted and generous man who loves and serves people. I love it, especially at the end there where he musses up his hair and he warm-heartedly spooks his maid before giving her a valuable coin for a Christmas present. And I love how he hands the coin to her and he says, do you know what that's for? And she says, to keep me mouth shut. You know, she thinks he's acting crazy. That He says, no, it's for a Christmas present then. Or the next day when he is back in the office and his employee, Bob Cratchit, comes in late and Scrooge tells him that this sort of behavior cannot be tolerated any longer and that he has no choice then now but to raise his salary. And Scrooge then begins laughing uncontrollably as Cratchit wonders if Scrooge has lost his mind then. You see, Scrooge was motivated to change when he was visited by three spirits, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. And horrified by the thought of dying alone and facing an eternity of misery, he repents of his selfishness and he vows to become a different man then. Now, I want you to know I'm not endorsing all of the theology of the story, okay? But nevertheless, it does make for some good entertainment, as well as serve as an incentive to live more generous lives. But we, though, as followers of Christ, we have a far better incentive, though, than just a fictional visit from the spirit of Christmas future. We have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, who indwells us. We have forgiveness. We have the gift of eternal life. We have the hope of eternal blessing and reward in Christ. And we have God's love that has been poured forth into our hearts by his Spirit. And so we've been saying that Christmas then is not all about you. It's not all about me. Christmas is not about our selfish wants and desires. But in fact, Christmas is all about love. It's all about God's generous love in sending us a Savior. And then after receiving the love of God in the Savior, you and I then are called to follow the example of the Savior. So we're continuing here in our Christmas series, looking at four perspectives on Christmas from various biblical writers. We saw Christmas from the perspective of the Apostle John. We saw that Jesus is the life and the light who gives all who believe the right to become children of God, recipients of grace upon grace. 
we seen Christmas according to Luke, in which God came into the world in a very unlikely way, and he used unlikely people to deliver an unlikely message of good news of great joy. And then last time then, Christmas according to Matthew, that in a fearful world, God is with us and he is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. So for today then, we want to look at Christmas according to Paul, the Apostle Paul. And our scripture passage is from the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. And here is the key thought that I want us to take away today. And that is the greatest possible example of humility compels us then to humbly serve and care for one another. The greatest possible example of humility compels us to humbly serve and care for one another. Before we look at our text in Philippians chapter 2, I just want us to look at a little summary here of what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament about the incarnation of the Son of God. Now, it's true, Paul does not speak of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem with shepherds or angels, and he doesn't mention the visit of the wise men a year or two later. Uh, Then again, neither does the Gospel of Mark. Mark begins his Gospel account with John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism. But Paul very clearly speaks of the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, became man and that he is our God-man Savior. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says that when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3, Paul speaks of Jesus the Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul speaks of the great mystery of godliness, the plan of salvation. And he quotes an ancient Christian hymn saying, He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. But in one of my favorite passages in Scripture... Paul speaks proud. Why are you chuckling there? I heard that chuckle there. but um, Just because we talked about one of my favorite passages in Scripture in, uh, in uh, Bible study this morning, right? I know. So, uh, but it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture here where Paul speaks powerfully and beautifully of how Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself by emptying himself of his divine privilege and outward glory and took on human flesh becoming a servant who is obedient, and obedient then even to the point of death on a cross. It is a passage then that challenges us to celebrate Christmas by considering anew then our attitude toward one another. 
You know, we think of Christmas, we think maybe of Christmas trees and lights and gifts and parties and family celebrations, all that sort of thing. We come to church and we read about the the manger in Bethlehem. We read about the visit of the wise men, those sorts of things. But do we think, and we think about what God has done for us in Christ, and well done, should we do that? But do we think then of, because of what God has done for us in Christ, how then are we to live? How are we to treat and to think of one another. And so as we look at our text then in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we will first there observe the commands of Christ, the commands of Christ, and then we will consider the example of Christ, the example of Christ. But first then, the commands of Christ is seen in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul writing here, he says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So first I want us to see the commands here in Christ, the commands that we have in Christ here. First off is unity. So Paul here says, starts off by saying, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort in love, if there's any fellowship or participation of the Spirit, if there's any affection or sympathy, then do this. He says, if there are any of these things. Well, let me ask you, is there any question whatsoever that there is encouragement in Christ? Do we have encouragement in Christ? Yes, we do. It's Really not an if there. We might translate, see, these things are certainties. And we might translate this as since. He's inviting us saying, if we have these things, and we do, by the way, say what? So if we do, or since we do, these realities, these are not questionable things. Since we have encouragement in Christ, since we have comfort from his love, since we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, Since we have tenderness and compassion, affection, sympathy for one another in Christ, since we have all of these things, in light of these things, what shall we do? Paul says, in light of that, what does he want us to do? He says, complete my joy by doing what? Being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. He's talking about unity. Because we have encouragement in Christ, because we have his love, because we have the fellowship of the Spirit, because we have affection and sympathy for one another in Christ, because we have all these things, be of the same mind. Unity. Biblical unity. Now there is a kind of unity which is not a biblical unity at all. Right? There is a kind of unity which says, well, 
There are things that, you know, we just, we overlook, you know, all kinds of things in the spirit of and in the interest of unity, and then we lose things that are very important or critical to our faith. And that's not a biblical unity. We have to hold and to maintain critical, essential truths of our faith, don't we? Scriptural teachings. So, biblical unity, then, is holding on to these critical elements of the faith, being of the same mind, having the same love, in full accord, that is, wholeheartedly, with all of our being, united in one purpose. We have, what, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. And so we are unified together in the mind of Christ, fulfilling the purposes and the mission of Christ. So unity, biblically, it's not the same thing as unanimity, that we're all the same and we all think the same. Uh, Has anybody here discovered yet that you do not think exactly the same as another person? Yeah. Every one of us, you know, there are things that we have the same, we can have the same mind on, the same focus, the same priority, but we may not see it exactly the same way. Be lockstep in agreement on everything. So biblical unity is not unanimity. It doesn't mean that we agree on every single thing. It doesn't mean that we have all the same personalities and gifts. It certainly doesn't mean that we have all the same preferences and opinions, does it? But we use, though, those diverse gifts and abilities and personalities, preferences, all of that, we work together then to further the work of the kingdom of God as we labor together then with a cooperative spirit for the glory of God. So biblical unity actually then sees strength in our differences and dare I say, even our different opinions and, opinions and perspectives on things. You know, I, I think one of the things I've been thinking about, not to go, go off on a political rant here, I'm not going to do that here, but I think I can see that, that uh, no matter what perspective you may have in politics, uh, left, right, or, or whatever, that there is a danger in one party or one perspective having absolute power and control, isn't there? See, and I don't care what your, what your thought is, it is dangerous to have one party or one perspective have absolute and total control, isn't it? Why? Because we need one another. We need one another to challenge one another, to, to help us to see the things that we're blind to, right? And in the same way, in the church, we need one another. We need our differences, we need our different personalities. We need our different opinions and perspectives on things. So many times I've seen that. It's, a, it's hard to believe here now. I've just been thinking about this recently. You know, it's like we're coming up now. I'll, I will have been here 22 years. I think, man, where did all of that time go, right? 22 years. And I think of the things that I've seen over time here, the ways I've learned and grown and changed in some ways and watching all of you, seeing how you've learned and grown in ways too. And seeing, though, how God has used the individual personalities of the members of the church for the good and the well-being and the building up of his church here. You see, and that is biblical unity, is God using all of those differences then as we labor together serving our Savior then with a common purpose and a cooperative spirit for the glory of God then. 
And by the way, then, here too on this, I want to really, I'm going to hammer this this theme of unity here today because it's a, a critical point of what Paul is saying here. I want us to say too, you know what? We do not create unity. It's not our task or our job to, to create unity among us. You see, because God has already done that for us. The Spirit of God has already created unity. He brought us together into one body. He has unified us in one body. So our task isn't to create unity. Our task then is to maintain, to maintain the unity that the Spirit has already created for us when he placed us together in the body of Christ. And so we might ask then, how can we help maintain unity in the body of Christ? We don't create it. We maintain what God has already created there. And I saw something in an article. I just want to share some key thoughts with you here. Uh, There's a pastor named Jeffrey Johnson. He wrote this article on some ways to maintain unity in the church. And I, and I won't say all of them here, but I just want to touch on a few of the key points that he made from that. Is The first one he said is, understand that maintaining unity is our responsibility. Uh, he starts off by quoting in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, Paul exhorts us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and here's the key phrase here, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So here then we see traits like humility and gentleness and patience and love. And we're going to need those qualities if we're going to maintain the unity of the Spirit, aren't we? Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Awfully difficult to remain unified with someone, with one other person, let alone a whole group of people, if there is pride, if there is rudeness, if there's impatience, if there's hatred. (laughs) Awfully tough to do that, right? Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. So understanding it's our responsibility, it's a command that God has given us. The second thing, he says, understand that causing discord is a sin. Have you ever thought about it that way? That when we willingly or perhaps even unwillingly or unwittingly create discord among brothers and sisters in Christ, that that's not just wrong, it's sin. It's a sinful thing to do that. And he says, then that which divides God's people and tears the unity of the church apart is a great sin indeed then. So when we fail to do that, we sin against God And we initiate discord among God's people then. So understanding our responsibility to maintain it, understanding that causing discord is a sin, but then here's where we we, we get to the tricky part here. Number three, love those who are difficult. All right? Love those. Anybody know somebody who's difficult to love? All right? Don't point them out to us right here, right? Actually, Steve, I think you've got the wrong idea, or the right idea. He said, uh, anybody know somebody who's difficult to love? Show us what you... Stand up, Steve, here. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Exactly, right? There's you go. There's the right, there's the right finger pointing right there, right? Love someone who's difficult, and that would be each one of us here in our own special ways, right? It says, he gives an interesting uh, para- or, uh, example here. He says, because they do not stack well... It is difficult to carry a bundle 
of crooked sticks. Have you ever tried to do that? Some crooked sticks, trying to get them in there, they're just kind of shifting all over. He says, yet crooked sticks are easy to carry when they're bounded by a cord. He says, the Puritan Thomas Watson reminds us that a group of Christians is similar to a pile of crooked sticks. We're all a big pile of crooked sticks in here, folks, right? <laughs> but what? But that are bounded together by love. Bound together by love. And so our different personalities do not always mesh. Our flaws often rub people the wrong way. But love covers a multitude of sins. Love is the perfect bond of unity. And so if we're going to be able to look past the personality flaws of others and maintain the unity of the Spirit, then love must prevail. And of course, an opposite of love then is what? Is to have a a critical spirit. A critical spirit that is always looking for something wrong. And if you're always looking for something wrong, are you going to find it? Yep. Yep. You will find it. I guarantee you. If you're looking for something wrong in another person, that kind of spirit, I guarantee you're going to find it. If you're looking for something wrong in a church, any church, including this church, I guarantee you're going to find it. And you're probably not even going to have to look very long and hard to do it, will you? But I wonder, for the person of the critical spirit, who's always seeing the flaws in others or in churches, I wonder if that person has the ability then maybe to turn that that critical spirit and look inward and see their own flaws, right? Because we all have them. So a critical spirit does not make for unity, but rather what? The bond of love then. There's another thing. He says, we do not allow our hearts to pull away from the church. We must guard our hearts. He says, before discord erupts openly, it usually takes place inwardly, doesn't it? Once we become critical and unhappy with a few things, without properly dealing with our concerns, then we'll begin looking for problems. And once we look for them, the floodgates will open and we'll see offenses everywhere. And we may not leave the church immediately, but our affections have already started to pull away from the congregation. So we need to guard our hearts. And then one final thing here. It says, redirect gossip with words of grace. How many of you, I know none of us have probably have ever done it in here. None of us in here have done it. But I've heard some churches where this happens, where sometimes there will be things that, uh, that someone will say, oh, we need to pray for so-and-so. It's a prayer request, but it really isn't a prayer request so much as it's what? Gossip, gossip right? It's gossip. So a critical spirit is contagious and can spread quickly through a congregation. By the way, are there legitimate, is there a difference between a legitimate complaint versus a critical spirit that's always looking for something to complain about? Absolutely. You know, that, that there is an important thing. There is nothing, in fact, actually a complaint can be a very healthy thing, can it? A complaint, when it's raised in the right way and handled in a right way, is actually can be a very healthy thing for a church or any relationship, can it? 
But when it's not raised in the right way, and it's not dealt with in the right way, then it becomes a big problem, doesn't it? And so there's nothing wrong with seeing a problem and wanting to address it. But here, this is this mentality of always looking for what something's that's wrong, right? So you can complain about it, and then you can talk to others about it and gossip about it. So he makes a suggestion here. He says, so when we hear a person complaining or gossiping about another person, says, there's no need to tell that person that he is in danger of gossiping. We simply and gently need to redirect the conversation. He says, one of the best ways to redirect gossip is by saying, you're concerned about John Doe? Well, we love John Doe. Have you addressed your concern with him? If not, I'll be happy to go with you. This usually does the trick, right? Regardless, the goal is to always respond in a way that seeks to reconcile and build up our precious brothers and sisters, not tear them down. But if we enter into the gossip, we're sharing in the guilt then, aren't we? So those are just some thoughts here on this key command in Christ, which is unity. The second one is, of course, love, the bond of peace, isn't it? We're to have the same love for one another. The same love, the same love as who? What, what's the same love? The same love of Christ. What was his command? As I have loved you, so you are to love one another. How did he love us? Supremely, right? Ultimately, sacrificially. I'm still learning how to love that way, and I suspect I will be for the rest of my life. I'm never going to love exactly as Christ loves me. But that's, that's the calling on our lives, right? That's how we're to love one another. So we are to maintain unity. We are to love one another with the same love. And one thing that can help us then to maintain unity, to love as Christ lives, lo- loves us, is to adopt an attitude of humility. An attitude of humility. Humility before God and humility before one another. We're told they're what? To count others as more significant than yourself. You know, it has been said that a spirit of pride in human relations indicates a lack of humility before God. You think that's true? If someone is proud around others, has a spirit of pride, it's betraying the fact that actually they lack humility before God. It's true, right? Can you be truly humble before God and then be proud in the presence of others? No, you can't. You can't. So when we humble ourselves before God, we will quite naturally then humble ourselves before one another. So we're to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We're to love as we have been loved. We're to humble ourselves before God and one another. And then we're to have concern for others. It's an outward focus. You know, Scripture doesn't tell us, have no concern for your own concerns. It says, no, we, we, we do need to have concern for our concerns. But what? But we should never place our concerns ahead of or before others, that we should put the concerns of others ahead of ourselves. Now, I know, is there a time when we need to focus a little bit on some healthy self, self-care, self not to get into psych, psychological babble talk here over there, but you know what I'm saying, right? 
We need to take care of ourselves too. And we need to set boundaries. I get that. But this is talking about we are not to be selfish, putting ourselves always ahead of others, but rather to think of others first, putting them before ourselves rather than that default position, which is what? Me, me, me. Those are the commands in Christ. Now let's look at the example of Christ in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. He says, what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, right here. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here we see in the example of Christ, his willful humbling, his willful humbling. You know, Christ is the supreme example of humility and selfless concern for others. You know, when you think about it, there is no greater possible example of humbling oneself than the example of Christ. Just think about that for a moment. Is it possible in your mind to imagine any greater humbling of oneself than the humbling of the Son of God and what he did? I think the answer is no. You might think, well, because first of all, because he is, he is God. God Almighty. And first of all, he humbles himself by simply becoming human. Now, you might think for a minute, well, couldn't there be a greater humbling than that? Why couldn't he have become like a a cockroach or something like that? Wouldn't that be a greater humbling than becoming human? And the answer is no, because of what he did in becoming human. So stick with me. See, there is no greater humbling than what the Son of God did for us. Because first of all, just becoming human, human, adding humanity to himself, right? That's a, that's a pretty significant step of humbling right there, right? But he didn't just become human just, just to transform as an adult. He became what? A baby. A dependent little baby. Now, I've never had a baby myself. I'm not planning on having a baby anytime soon. But... I've heard that babies are pretty dependent. Is that true? That, that's, that's, the, that's the rumor I hear about. They're pretty dependent on their parents and others, aren't they? God humbled himself then to become human and to become a baby, no less. And a baby not born in some great royal palace, but born to a lowly young couple from Nazareth to be raised by them. And he was a servant. He humbled himself then by becoming human. 
And then as he grew up, he was a servant and he was obedient then to the point of death. And not just any death, but death on a cross. A horrible way to die. Think about the horrible physical pain of the cross. But again, even that is still not why it's the greatest example of humbling possible. See, because, and here's why it's the greatest example of humbling possible. When he was dying on that cross, as he was suffering physically, there was something else that was going on. What was that? He was suffering spiritually when the wrath of God was poured out on him. Imagine that all of God's anger against sin. Think of, think of all of the sin of your life. Think of all of the sin of, of people living now throughout their lives. And then think of the entirety of human history. Think about the wrath of God against that. And all of that then was directed where? To the Son of God hanging on that cross where he suffered for that. He took that judgment and punishment. He literally suffered hell for countless human beings. Now do you see why I say there's no greater possible example of humbling to go from God Almighty to suffering hell for countless human beings. Well, folks, that's the example we're called then to. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I perfectly embody that attitude of humbling the Jesus because I'm still working on that one. I think we all are. But you see, that's what we're called to, to be ever growing toward, right? He's our example, and we all fall infinitely short, of course. But that is the example to which we are to follow and grow toward. By the way, you know, these these verses give us some wonderful instruction in the doctrine of Christ, as well as the example, then, that we are to follow. He was in the form of God. What does that mean? Well, the word form there means one definition of that is this. That it, is the, it is the true and exact nature of something, possessing all the characteristics and qualities of something. See, and that was Jesus, the Son of God. He possessed the true and exact nature of deity, of God, possessing all the characteristics and qualities of God. So he was God in the form of God. He was eternally preexistent. In the beginning was the Word. But what? But he did not count or consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be hung onto, to be clung to. Saying what? This is by rights my divine glory and privilege. But he willingly released that emptied himself, that he let go of that glory and privilege that was his and humbled himself in love. He willingly emptied himself of that divine privilege and outward glory. And he became a servant. He had a servant spirit. 
He served his father. He served sinful human beings. He served those who loved and obeyed him. And he served those who hated and rejected him. He was born in the likeness of men. That is, he took on flesh. He was made human. He became human. Every way that it means to be human, he took that on to himself. But without sin. So he was the God-man, our kinsman and our divine redeemer. And he was obedient then. Obedience at all costs. He was obedient to the law of God. He perfectly fulfilled all the righteous requirements God has for us. He obeyed them all. He was obedient to the leading of the Spirit. He followed the leading of the Spirit. He was obedient then to the will of the Father, including that crucial moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed three times, Father, but it's possible for this cup, this cup of wrath, to be taken from me. May it be so. But nevertheless, not what I will, but what? What you will. Thy will be done. We're told then too in Scripture, though, you know, that, that it was for the joy set before him then that he endured the agony of the cross, despising its shame. See, I think what happened in that garden, what an, an, an amazing, incredible moment in time there when the eternal Son of God, slain before the foundation of the world, was there in that garden struggling with that moment, knowing full well everything that was about to happen to him, and in his humanity crying out, Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, but nevertheless, not what I will, but thy will be done. He accepted that. He obeyed that. And then it says what? We're told that angels came and ministered to him and strengthened him for what he was about to endure. And I think it was at that time when those angels came and ministered to him that what happened in that moment is what we read of in Hebrews where we're told there what? That for the joy set before him, he endured the cross despising its shame. You know, he went to the cross with joy in his heart and his mind. Why? Because he saw you and he saw me and he knew that it was all that it was going to accomplish. So there he who knew no sin became sin for us. The cup of the Father's wrath against all of our sin was poured out on him. He achieved that victory over sin and death. And then he willingly gave up his spirit. No one took his life from him. He willingly laid it down. And he did all of this in confident expectation. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See then, God then highly exalted him, gave him the name above every name, and all who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, all will confess this. He had confident expectation in humbling himself and enduring all of that for the joy that was set before him of our salvation. So what? What are we to do with this? Well, I want to remind us that the greatest possible example of humility compels us to humbly serve and care for one another. So as we celebrate Christmas this year, let's, let's not think only of ourselves. Let's remember the love which compelled the Son of God to come into our world and to be made human. Let's remember the love which compelled him to give his life for us. Let's remember the example of humble selflessness and endeavor then to love and humbly serve and care for one another this Christmas and every day of the year. So I'll ask a couple of questions then. Do you have the mind of Christ? What is the mind of Christ? Well, it's that commitment to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's loving as we have been loved. It's humbling ourselves before God and one another. It's concern for others, putting the needs of others ahead of ourselves. It is a willful humbling. It is a spirit of servanthood. It is obedience at all costs. But it's doing it all with confident expectation. Confident expectation that God sees, God knows, God will reward. So I ask a very practical question than this. Who can you serve? Who can you serve? Don't be a Scrooge this Christmas. That is a Scrooge 1.0. And by the way, one of my little hang-ups, I know we say 1.0, 2.0. It actually, we should say 1.0, right? 2.0. Because O is a letter and O, and o is a letter and 0 is the number, right? I know that this is a losing fight, right? And I am never going to convince the world to stop saying O when you mean zero, right? Your phone number is not 920 or 920, it's 920, right? I know, it's a losing battle. Who thinks I'm crazy now, like, like Scrooge is made, right? And, and Bob Cratchit, right? So I know it's a losing battle. So I'm just going to end right here and just say, don't be Scrooge 1.0, zero. Be... A Scrooge 2.0, zero, right? He became a kind-hearted and a generous servant to all he knew. He served his maid. He served his employee, Bob Cratchit, and his family. He served his nephew. He served everyone he encountered in his city. So I would ask, he's a fictional character. You know what's better than fictional? The real thing, right? The real thing. So, who can you serve this Christmas? Do you know someone who, maybe it's just a kind word. Someone who needs a helping hand. Do you know someone who could use a helping hand? Well, don't wait for a visit from the ghost of Christmas future. Ask the Holy Spirit of God who indwells you 
to bring to mind or to lead you to someone that you can serve this Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have a Redeemer who has humbled himself, Lord, the greatest possible example of humbling himself. And he did this, he was motivated by love. He was motivated by love to do this. As he humbled himself, as he took on the pain of the cross, physically, emotionally, spiritually, in every way, Lord, he did this for the joy that was set before him because he saw, Lord, he saw us and he saw countless men and women through the ages knowing that he was going to redeem them through that. So, Lord, I pray that we would have this mind among ourselves, humbling ourselves before you and one another in love, serving one another. Lord, would you bring someone to mind or perhaps bring someone across our path that we can serve this Christmas. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.